Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm wearing a 90. A 1940s 90. It's a big sort of bed shirt, it's like Scrooge. Here we are, another episode of the Wellbeing Lab. Here he is, Will Young, sitting at his dining room table. Another day in paradise. Uh, greetings. Today, what are we going to talk about? It's a biggie today. Trauma and then EMDR. I'm going to be talking to Joe Stubbley, who's a psychiatrist, psychotherapist and psychoanalyst, all of the P's, as well as being a lead clinician for the adult trauma service at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. I think I fell in love with her appropriately. Uh, we talk about what happens in our brains when we experience trauma, societal recognition of trauma or the lack of it, and treatments for trauma. She's a really cool person. Um, but before we get into all of that, I ask her to define all the different psychs because I don't know what they are, and I've had a lot of therapy. A psychiatrist is someone who has medical training before they then go into the psychiatry field, and then they're often working with people with severe mental health difficulties, usually in hospitals, and prescribing medication, as well as doing you know, different forms of therapy. A psychotherapist learns to use talking therapies, and... So does a psychoanalyst, but they learn to do um, talking therapies that are more intensive. So traditionally five times a week with someone lying on a couch. So it's something about those different levels of intensities that makes the difference. I never knew that. So psychoanalysis, I sort of think of sort of American films like, I mean, psychoanalysis, that is more intense and it is commonly, let's say, a five day a week Yes, and, you know, I mean, some people now do four times a week psychoanalysis, but it is essentially the kind of thing that we do think about with Hollywood in yeah. analysis every day. Why would someone choose psychoanalysis over a more gradual approach? Well, I suppose nowadays particularly, it's um, if someone's got really significant difficulties in their life... So they may have, you know, long-term relationship issues or, you know, been struggling with depression or anxiety for a long time. And some of the briefer therapies haven't helped. And they really want to try and understand what the meaning of that is at a very deep level, sort of a kind of question around who I am and what's led me to be in this place and how do I begin to understand myself. So I guess... One way of thinking about the difference is that often the briefer therapies are about trying to manage symptoms. And then when you go deeper, you're trying to kind of think more about those bigger existential questions that might mm. help you change a bit more of how you engage with life and who you are. Well, this now leads me beautifully on to my favourite topic, which is trauma. I came to trauma, I had a breakdown and then I got diagnosed by, by my therapist she said, I think you've got PTSD. And I thought, PTSD, isn't that like 
you know, to do with veterans in, in the war. And then I, I started reading up on it. I had symptoms like dissociation that I'd taken on depersonalization, very, very scary. And mm. um, I was misdiagnosed as bipolar, mm. and, which I wonder if that is common. And the more I read on, up on trauma and how it was stored in the body and coming to that type of trauma-specific therapy, EMDR, somatic therapy, I had to go into treatment, I never really looked back. Um, and it also explained a hell of a lot of my behaviours and my sadness, you know, a lot of depression I used to have. Um, how did you come to work within trauma and how would you define trauma? You've just said some really fascinating things to me and I feel like I want to pick up well, please. lots well, please of do. them. Yeah. But, I, but I'll say a little bit about in response to your question first. I suppose that starting training as a, a doctor you see a lot of people in pain and a lot of people who are struggling that, that medicine doesn't quite know what this is about and what's going on. You know, there's symptoms, but they don't seem to fit very well. And that led me to want to do psychiatry. And I found the same thing again. The way that, the, that things get set up of sort of looking at the symptoms and then making a diagnosis and then giving some kind of treatment didn't really seem to make enough sense to me. And so that was when I wanted to go more into psychotherapy and just find out about people, just be curious about what's going on. And there's a really interesting movement going on now called the Power Threat Meaning Framework. And I don't know whether you've heard of this. No, but I'm writing it down immediately. Okay, go because on. it's challenging this whole idea around diagnosis. Because when you say to me that you got misdiagnosed and it is common that people with trauma get misdiagnosed with bipolar but also all sorts of other things mm. I think it's often because people are chasing symptoms and aren't really asking who is this person what's happened in their life and the power threat meaning framework starts with challenging the notion of what's wrong with you which is what gives us the diagnosis and instead ask the questions, what's happened to you? Mm. And once mm. you start getting to what's happened to you, then you start making sense of, okay, so that makes sense that you've got dissociation symptoms if you've had all of those traumas happen in your background. That makes sense of why your moods might be all over the place because emotional regulation is really difficult when you've had trauma. Mm. So you mm. start to put the pieces together and that's, I think, part of what psychotherapy can do when it's good. I was also incredibly lucky when I started my training at the Tavistock. There was a woman called Caroline Garland who was a psychoanalyst who had just kind of decided that we need to understand more about people who've had adult episodes of trauma. And so she started talking to people who, I don't know, had been in the Hillsborough um, disaster, King's Cross fire, the Herald of Free Enterprise... And she was understanding at a, a, a sort of deep level what these people were going through was about the experience of the trauma having an impact on how they were coping with life. And I think it's worrying, and I think it comes out in what you're saying, the way that a lot of how people are looking for help, no one asks what's happened to you. I mean, this is so interesting. And since doing trauma work, I asked myself 
when I meet people, I think, I wonder what's happened. So, for example, I was talking to someone last night and they shared with me that they had been in treatment for attempted suicide. And my first thought was, was trauma. And the person said that they'd been in some sort of therapy since the age of seven. And I thought, all right, what happened? What Absolutely. Happened? And, and maybe this is a good time to dive into what trauma is. How would you define trauma? There are single episodes of trauma that people can experience in adult life, which might be those kind of disasters or assaults or one-off events. And they're the things that I think most people often think about when they're first thinking about trauma. You know, something terrible has happened. But that's only one category. The more pervasive, maybe chronic, repetitive experience of trauma that people can have as well. And that quite often that can happen when you're a child. So the developmental trauma. But there's also something that I think is important around thinking about sometimes there can be traumatic things that happen that might be about your very early relationships with your mum and your dad. Or it might even be the transgenerational transmission of trauma. Mm. It goes down the family line. And so sometimes people can't answer that question of what happened to me because they, you know, weren't quite registering that this was what was happening to them. But that's still trauma. So trauma could be, for example, both my grandparents were in World War II. They both had severe PTSD. One took his own life because of it. The other had a mental and physical breakdown and had to be signed off work from 55. I'm sure that that is passed down on some level. I am too, mm. absolutely. And, and you know, the resilience also gets passed down. So it's not oh, yeah. that we're just saying that, you know, it's only the trauma. But there is something, I think, about recognising, you know, even in the conversation we were having before we started, and I mentioned to you that I had a grandfather who was uh, in Gallipoli, I never met him, but I think that there was something of the shadow of him being severely wounded that still stayed for all of my family and is still kind of within me. We hold these things. Am I right in thinking that a sense of trauma can be anything that can bring on a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness? So sometimes I say, if I'm in Sainsbury's and me dropping the eggs, you know, if I if I find that traumatic to a point of feeling helpless and hopeless, then that is traumatic. Look, I think you're asking a really good question there. And I think that there is something about, we do have to differentiate between things that might make us feel under threat or things that are adversity. And I think you're right that trauma does hold centrally a feeling of helplessness. But the other bit I would add in there is that it's often also about an overwhelming of our usual defences to manage those kinds of experiences. So I think there's a a fantastic um, trauma expert who you might have heard of called Judith Herman, and she has a great definition of trauma. She says that it's a combination of disempowerment and disconnection from others. Yes. Because when you talk about the eggs, the disempowerment is the helplessness. But I think the hopelessness is often connected to feeling and there's no one here to help me. 
I'm all alone with this. I've got the, all of these smashed eggs here. I can't do anything about it. I am just on my own and that's it. And we know that when something like that happens to someone, when they're overwhelmed and they feel so helpless, one of the experiences is, okay, you're, you know, your worst nightmares have been activated in this moment, but also your belief and trust in the goodness of the world and the mm. people that you love to protect you is kind of damaged in that moment. It can move very quickly, I think, to existential terror. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that it, it is existential terror. We're talking about really powerful anxieties of life and death get activated. You know, persecution, annihilation, falling into fragments, the whole thing is part of in that being overwhelmed and helpless and not being able to defend yourself, what gets stirred up inside of us. One of the things that I found was that I started really kind of treating or listening to my body. So a lot of the therapy I was doing actually seemed to come from feelings and places that were sort of trapped in, in, in various areas of my body rather than looking at my mind. Because in trauma, the body can quite often be driving the mind. It is. What we know about trauma is that it leaves someone much more likely to go into that fight, flight, or even freeze response. And that's all body-based. So, you know, the, the interesting research around people having that area of their brain, you know, what's known as the amygdala, it gets put into overdrive. And so you go into fight flight just at the drop of a hat. Some tiny little thing gets registered and you're in full scale threat. And that's all body response. And you often don't even know what's triggered it. Yeah, so let's talk about that, actually, because I think that's very interesting for the listeners. What, what does happen to the brain when it gets what's going on in the brain in a very sort of simple way. So if we're thinking about someone who's been traumatised and if we're going to talk about diagnosis, they may have PTSD. There are three sort of main features of PTSD. The first is that people have these symptoms of what I was just talking about, the fight flight. They're often called hyperarousal symptoms. They're like anxiety. It's your body gets activated as I was just describing and ready for action so your heart races your breathing gets shallow your muscles get tense your guts churning it's all ready for action but it's getting triggered all the time because the amygdala that I was talking about is in overdrive it's picking up every little threat like a smoke detector that picks up not even when the toast is burning just when the toast goes into the toaster every single tiny thing. So there's that hyperarousal bit, first of all. The second bit of PTSD is what they call the re-experiencing or the reliving symptoms. These are the things like nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive images, the trauma coming back as though you're reliving it. And that's because there's a part of the brain called the um, hippocampus that usually helps us to be able to put experiences into our autobiographical story. So, you know, it kind of becomes a part of our narrative of who we are. But when we're too overwhelmed, when all of that fight flight's happening, when all those big anxieties we were talking about earlier happen, the hippocampus can switch off. And so it, it stops that contextualising of 
being able to put this into our story, it just stays around as though it's happening all the time. Yeah. Now, if you've got those two things happening all the time, so you're getting triggered into nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive images, you're getting constantly triggered into fight-flight reactions, it's not surprising that the third bit is avoidance. People shut down. You don't want to get triggered. You don't want to feel overwhelmed. So you don't have as much contact with people and you often go emotionally numb just to try and Mm. protect yourself. So all of that's going on often, first of all, in an ordinary way in response to a traumatic event. So in the first month, we wouldn't even think about a diagnosis because these are ordinary responses to abnormal events. Yeah. It's when it continues and keeps going. I mean, I could, yeah, I could definitely tick those three categories. Um, and, and, you know, one of the hardest thing was a real loss of joy in anything. I just didn't want to do anything. I couldn't sing anymore. And, yeah, complete emotional. I mean, my mm. brain kind of shut down. You know, it was really, I did get very ill. But um, I feel like... It was interesting when I started talking about PTSD, certain responses from people. I mean, I'd say this was about four years ago, maybe five. Some people would say, what's he talking about? You know, what about these soldiers? You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Has that been a a common thing that you've heard over the years? And is it getting better? I do think it's a common thing. I mean, we've got to think first of all, that PTSD only got into the psychiatric kind of classifications in the 80s in response to the Vietnam veterans, but also in response to Judith Herman and and the feminist movement around interpersonal domestic violence and child sexual abuse. So it had that start, but it took took both those political movements to Mm. get it in there. And I think there is something about a difficulty in society of really acknowledging trauma that's around. You know, I think we might wonder whether one of the reasons why it's a bit easier for people to talk about trauma now, because there has been more of an acknowledgement. If you think, for instance, about what's happened around childhood sexual abuse. So it started to become something that people were talking about more. But I still think, and I think sexual abuse is a reasonable kind of example of this, none of us want to think that our society is like that or that people are like that or that someone could do such terrible things to children. Mm. So we we have, I think, a natural propensity to turn a blind eye, Mm. to say, you know, no, that's not really happening you know society's not like that it's just you know people making a fuss about stuff that's not really that important and I think that comes into trauma in all kinds of different ways people struggle to know it's really hard to think about it and I think there is a a need for us to be able to acknowledge the adult traumas and also the childhood ones and I think one big thing that's done that has been the research around adverse childhood experiences. Have you heard about these, the ACEs? No. Okay, so ACEs are really interesting. So there was a huge group of studies that were done in the States around 2002 and upwards where they took a large population, about 17,000 people, and they asked them 10 questions that were about common 
adversity in childhood? Were you experiencing physical abuse, sexual abuse? Did you have a parent who had substance misuse? Was there mental health difficulties in the family? Etc. Etc. Divorce, separation and so on. And then they looked at their mental health record and at their physical health records. And what they saw was the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the more mental health difficulties you have, but also you are much more at risk of things like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, a lot of inflammatory disease, chronic respiratory disease, and things like teenage pregnancy, IV drug use. You know, it was a whole holistic picture that if you've had those experiences and the more of them you've had, the more likely you are to have difficulties as an adult. Mm. And that's just, you know, so straightforward that how can mm. we then not talk about trauma? Is the treatment out there for people? Like, what is that available for people? Well, I think what you were saying to me earlier about your experience, it's still happening. You know, mm. people, even great therapists and, you know, really good clinicians are still missing trauma, and that's difficult. But I do think that we are, as a society, starting to learn more about the sorts of things we were talking about, noticing what's going on in your body and feeling states and that mm. kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, we should be going into schools as much as possible and teaching children about emotional states, how to recognise them, what's going on in your body. And yeah, I know emotional <laughs> check-ins. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, that's it, yeah. But that's what mindfulness is, you know. Mm. That's part of why mindfulness has been so successful because it's teaching people to do that. And I think you can probably see I'm starting at that end rather than going to what's out there for treatment because, yeah. you know, we know the NHS isn't in a great state at the moment. We have, in my service, a really long waiting list of people to be seen and not enough resource. And that feels awful because... How can you make people who have had really severe trauma sit and wait a long time before they can be seen? Well, how, how do you manage that for yourself? It is often really difficult. Um, mm. I feel guilty. I feel sometimes furious. But I have this amazing team that I work with and we keep trying to work out ways where we can help more people with the limited resources we've got. And so we run lots of groups and all that kind of thing. We do we do EMDR, which can be, as I think you've probably experienced, an incredibly mm. helpful technique. But we also offer yoga groups alongside the talking therapy, and that can help people use their talking therapy better because they're accessing all that body stuff that you were talking about earlier. Mm. They're getting in touch with what's going on in their bodies and then they can talk about that but in a kind of grounded, in touch with their body way when they're in the talking therapy. So that moves things forward more quickly too. Do you think that we don't approach mental health in the same way that we might approach sort of obvious physical? You know, because if, if, if I had a broken arm or, OK, it's very easy to diagnose or cancer, you probably wouldn't be sitting with your brilliant team going, right, well, we can figure out some really good ways of getting wheelbarrow treatment, even though there's not much fun, there's a long waiting list. You wouldn't be having that conversation, would you? I mean, imagine the outcry. I know, I know. So, like, it, what is that? Like, are there countries that have a better approach to mental health or is it just because it's a complicated... What do you think it is? 
I think it is complicated, but mm. I, you know, there's been a push for years for there to be parity of funding from physical health to mental health. You know, mental health has always been the, the poor sister. And I think it's probably partly linked to what we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of shame around mm. mental health. Mm. You know, people don't want to talk about it. And I think that's part of why it's fantastic that you're talking about your experiences because that challenges other people's shame. And mm. I think it's also about normalising something that, you know, this is part of what we go through and we all have trauma in our lives in some place and we all have to learn how to work with that and use the supports we've got around us and get to know ourselves more. And that's not necessarily about having to find a trauma service or, you know, mm. psychoanalysis or anything like that. Sometimes it's just about different ways of self-care and beginning to understand ourselves mm. that can really work on those sorts of things. Jo, that was amazing actually thank you and we didn't go even go into there's so many areas we could go into you're going to have to come back i would love to come back i mean this is what i yeah. like doing yes this is fantastic thank you so much till the next time thank you it's been a real pleasure ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Joe Stubbley for Prime Minister is going to be my new badge. Um, I just thought she was really cool. Loved what she said about, you know, don't ask what's wrong, ask what's happened. I mean, it just says it all. The next person, Katrina Morton, she's a bit of a cool dude. She's a psychotherapist and an EMDR practitioner. I have also worked with Katrina. And this isn't sort of nepotism, by the way, because there are a lot of people I've worked with who aren't very good. <laughs> And there's a lot of people's books who I've read that I don't think are that great and we don't have them on the show. She knows her stuff. So we talk about what EMDR is. We talk about the amygdala part of the brain, which we started talking about with Joe, how EMDR works and the importance of having one foot in the past and one foot in the present. I asked Katrina why someone would come for EMDR treatment. It's very, very effective at taking an old trauma or, or a recent trauma that stays very live and active in the amygdala part of your brain. So when it fires off, it keeps firing off and taking your nervous system with it. So it's very, very dysregulating and trauma can be really debilitating. EMDR is it's such a good way of taking that trauma out of your amygdala and into the kind of your hippocampus, your 
prefrontal cortex, letting it process so it can fade. While it's in your amygdala, they don't fade. They stay really, you know, live and present. And it just makes, it just makes life so difficult. EMDR can be quite a tough process, but it's really quick, you know, and there's a lot of different mm. applications for it. What does the amygdala part of the brain do? It does a lot of different things, okay? It's a, it's a really important part of your brain. People with trauma have a much larger enlarged amygdala because it works much harder. It's the place that we store the traumatic memory. And there's a very good reason for that, that if we have a life-threatening experience, we want to store it so that if that happens again, we fire off, we don't have to think what to do. And so it's, you know, it's effective. It's part of our, our very primitive brain. However, when it's got things stored in it, there's, there's no kind of access to them. So they don't fade, there's no chronology. It's called your smoke detector as well. A really simple example is if you're in a car crash and you find that after the car crash, you kind of, you know, everything settles down, you get try to get back in your car to drive and you just can't. It's like you can't function, just freeze. And it's like, I can't do this. Because that's a trigger. It's The car is triggering that trauma. And if you froze in the car crash, you're just going to freeze. And you literally can't make yourself even think about how to turn on the car. It feels terrifying. EMDR will process that memory and help it move into a memory that will fade and it doesn't fire your nervous system off every time. It fades and then you can get back in your car. You can manage all the, oh, I'm nervous about this, but that's different as, you know, as you're well aware to that triggered state that's just totally debilitating. Well, it's really interesting, I think, what you say, and really it's something that I've been really focusing on over the last few months, which is the fact that it has no chronology, those feelings in the amygdala. So it, it really feels like it's happening. Absolutely. Right there and then. Yeah. And there's no yeah. point saying to somebody who's triggered that is absolutely terrified, oh, but everything's fine. There's nothing to be afraid of. Well, they feel terrified. Hmm. They, f they feel it. It's like, don't tell me that because it's not helping. You need to be able to manage the, the nervous system. And you can do that. You can widen your window. You can, you know, process some of the, the, the trauma. Which is a window of tolerance, isn't it? So you can... Yeah, your capacity. Tolerate those... Yeah. Your capacity, yeah. That's it, exactly. Which is a big thing that we worked on a lot. Yes. You've just given a, a great explanation of the amygdala... And then you mentioned that with EMDR, it then can move those emotional memories as well as potentially visual memories, flashbacks, all those things, to the hippocampus and the frontal lobes. Can I ask yes. you a little bit about those two areas of, of the brain? Your frontal lobes are what I'd call your thinking clever parts of your brain. You're thinking, you're online, your hippocampus is like your, your library. So as you're doing the thinking thing, you're going back into your hippocampus going, oh, when was that? Who was, oh gosh. And then, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, it's there, it's there, just give me a moment. And then you remember it pops back out of your library into your thinking part of your brain. When you're triggered, woof, goes offline. You just go straight. So front, frontal loads, thinking part of your brain, go. offline. 
completely gone. You can't think, you can't work anything out. You're into fight, flight or freeze. And so all you feel is that kind of body sensation and the emotions that go with it. You know, you really lose touch with what's happening right here, right now. If you don't understand what's happening, you don't know what to do. And so you need to be able to recognise what's happening so that it, that kind of, either you've got a note of what you can do, either on your phone or you can tell people around you, if I get triggered and I dissociate, can you do this with me to get me back? So sometimes things like smells are very good. Yes. Touching things. Anything sensory is going to give you that present moment. This is now. The trauma was back then. So when we're doing EMDR, that's exactly what we're doing or any kind of body work. We've got one foot in the past. Depending on how far that foot is in the past will depend on the, the effect and the activation within your body. It's particularly important to have that one foot in the past. I know that's a past experience. One foot in the present with things like smells and like you say, that sensory touch, textures, things that you can look at and really kind of focus in on because that's your present moment. If we're all in the past, we're just triggered. I did a session the other day. I literally was looking out at these trees, exactly as you described. I said, I'm looking at the trees and I know that they're here in the present. I said, but I'm also another part of me, 50% is completely back in this traumatic time yeah. I mean it was like I was split bang down the middle couldn't have done it on my own because it was too scary to go to without a practitioner so when I present with that to you what what are the methods for EMDR that you can use EMDR is like I say there's a, there's a few different ways of doing it so you've got one foot in the past one foot in the present but the, with the EMDR, you're processing. So if you were standing in front of me and describing that beautifully, I know you've got one foot in the past, so let's let's put in some processing right now. So I'm with you, you can hear me, I've got present moment experience. We do that with either tapping, and you can tap anyone on your body, or eye movements. So I would pass my fingers or something in front of your eyes so that you're moving your eyes. And when you can do that, that's the processing that your brain's doing for that bit that's in the past. It's helping it move because you're wide awake, you're here, you know you're here, because that's the way your body processes things. What does EMDR stand for? It stands for eye movement, desensitisation and reprocessing. It's such a gobful that we say EMDR. I'll say a wee bit about the mechanics of it, because... What EMDR does is it replicates the process of when you're asleep and you're dreaming, you're processing. You're processing stuff from the day, maybe from the day before, that's kind of whooped up your emotional levels. Rapid eye movement sleep. So your eyes are moving really fast inside your head. And the kind of research that's been done on this says that what it's doing is accessing left and right hemispheres in a, quite a, a rhythmic way. And it's just the way that we process. So what EMDR is doing by that bilateral stimulation, it registers 
in your brain left and right. You're replicating the sleep process, but when you're asleep, you can't access the amygdala. It's a closed circuit. You've got to be awake. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, that's why you need the present moment experience. So really, EMDR is replicating a, a completely natural system that yeah. the body has. What stops the process, the natural process of the brain moving traumatic memories and emotions? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's quite a bit of debate about that. But from my experience, I can say that people who have a freeze response at the time seem to be the ones who it gets stuck. If you have an active response, a fight or a flight, then it seems that even if you're just kind of blindly running, you've got some kind of completion. Also, um, how much capacity you have, natural capacity, and also, you know, how ill or tired you are on that day, you've got less capacity. The other thing that can really impact is what happens with people around you at the time or immediately after. If somebody says or does the wrong thing, it can have a dramatic impact. And it can be the littlest things, like in hospital, a very cold or uncaring doctor. It can be, you know, somebody just kind of saying the wrong thing at, at the time or just the shock of being told a diagnosis that you didn't expect. That sears itself and stops the natural process. That's the case with, with any trauma. I think people would like to hear this. And what results have you got from using EMDR? I mean, you know, what kind of states would people come to and what kind of states? I mean, obviously you've seen me blossom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. I don't tend to get the kind of what I would call sort of standalone trauma, which would be an accident, a one-off, sudden, unexpected thing that then just stays with someone. They're usually a lot more kind of further back and they'll come from consistent abuse, either sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, emotional abuse, repeated things that wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't describe those things as a trauma, but that repeated pattern of behaviour, you know, repeatedly being ignored, neglected, shouted at, it has such a cumulative effect. And so the EMDR with those people will start with something and then as the EMDR goes, all the different things that it's linked into will just start appearing. And the brain will show you one and, and another and another and another until it goes back to like way, way, way back and it kind of comes to an end. And then you go back to the beginning again. And it's like, okay, so this time when you're, you know, in this particular situation, does it feel the same? Is it as bright? Are you in it? Or are you looking at yourself? When I hear, oh no, it's not as bright or oh, I can see myself, you know it's starting to shift because you're no yeah. longer experiencing it from the inside out. You want to be looking at it from the outside in. And we did a lot of stuff, didn't we? A lot of my stuff was repetitive. Yes. You know, and, and, and I think it's important for people to hear this, that 
you know, the, the stuff that I had buried. And I remember you coming in after our second session and I was in treatment, residential treatment, and you thought, I'm not sure what's wrong with this person. And then you just brought up, for me, boarding school was a big thing. And then it all came out. But it was amazing, my capacity to hide it. It just gets blocked and buried. It's such a good mm. coping mechanism. You know, I've had people who, they don't know what the original trauma was. But the good news is you don't need to know. When I started doing my EMDR training, I remember thinking, oh, wow, nobody has to come and tell me their story. Can you imagine for like rape victims, who the hell wants to go and tell their, their story? They don't need to. I've helped people recover from their traumatic experience, be able to like, have very little effect. And I've never known what happened to them. And I don't need to. You know, people really need to hear that. You don't have to tell your story. It's a sort of side note, really, but if people are on very strong medication, does that affect EMDR? I get asked that a lot. Uh, in my experience, no. Because, and it doesn't matter how strong your medication is, if you get triggered, your nervous system goes off. It might not go off as highly as it would, but your trauma and your trauma memory is part of your survival process mechanism. It will bypass everything. So... No, I've treated so many people on pretty strong medication. Our brain and our body are doing what they're designed to do. And because EMDR is exactly like you've said, it's a process that the body does naturally, then as a therapist, your job is to stand back and just facilitate this and help the, the client stand back because your body and your brain will do it. They'll do it naturally. And time and time again, I just see amazing results with people. And quick, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, it, it can be quite quick. Depending what it is, obviously, people should know this stuff. It shouldn't be a secret. It should be really, really well known. Brains, bodies, we get affected by things. Katrina, it's so nice to see you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so lovely to see you and talk to you. Thank you ever so much. I really, really am very pleased with that conversation because so many people don't know what EMDR and I just thought Katrina put it very succinctly what it is. Um, and I've experienced it and it's, you know, really has changed my life. That and scented candles. Well, you may hear the sound of birds in the background. They are Moroccan birds, sparrows, blackbirds, a few storks. Because I'm reading through your messages dear listener, in Morocco. Now, a lovely email from someone just listening to the podcast on agoraphobia and I'm absolutely blown away that every single thing that is being discussed happens in my daily life. I did once mention to my doctor how difficult situations are and he said that because I hold down a full-time job and leave the house daily, then I wasn't bad enough to receive any treatment. What he doesn't realise is the planning involved to be able to do these things. I love live music and have to make sure I always sit on an end seat close to the exit, me too, and leave prior to the last number to avoid the crowds, me too. To be able to travel on holiday, I have to leave late in the evening and take all the minor roads as motorways terrify me. If the traffic stops, I feel so claustrophobic. We once drove to Spain without touching a motorway, a fact I secretly find both exhilarating and sad. 
My husband is very supportive, but the rest of the family has no idea. I beat myself up daily for being anxious about every single situation the whole world seems to find normal. Thank you for discussing this topic. It's given me hope that maybe I'm not the alien I called myself. Oh, well, you're not. Um, you know, and we can't help our nervous systems and our responses, and often we don't make sense of them because they don't, they don't make sense. As, you know, as I've said before, you know, why would we find something so difficult? There's not necessarily a logic to it. But then if we're stuck on a fight or flight or freeze response, you know, can't help it. Someone else, been in touch. Via email, hi Will, I just listened to the episode 4 podcast with Thomas Erickson. I loved his book, so I was excited to see his name on the podcast. I've worked in HR for almost 20 years. This was so refreshing. My heart is usually in my mouth when I hear HR mentioned, as I know we don't always get a great rep. The practical advice was great, and I've shared this episode with my network. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. You know I always love to hear from you. Uh, here are the ways you can contact the Wellbeing Lab. Email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at the Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, we've got conflict resolution with Ian Leslie. He's written a book and he wasn't what I expected. I expected someone more serious. Um, I mean, he really knows his stuff. A journalist and it's really fascinating actually and really good chat glad i did my homework until then lots of love bye did you know the well-being lab is produced by audio af and is part of the acast creator network it's true hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.